you ever find yourself wondering if you have a hormonal imbalance issue like PCOS or what is the cost of egg freezing? This week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Maureen Kelly for this episode of the Up Your Glow podcast. Maureen Kelly is a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. She is the medical director of Society Hill Reproductive Medicine here in Philadelphia. And she's just an incredible woman and leader in both PCOS and in the science of egg freezing. I'm your host, Susie Welsh, and I really think you'll enjoy this conversation with Maureen and learning more about hormonal imbalance issues, lifestyle tips, and when to even think about egg freezing or embryo freezing as a woman or even as a couple or a man. It's something that I've certainly thought about over the years, especially after having worked for a long time in a fertility clinic. And you'll hear me bring that up in my conversation with Maureen. So we got a little personal, we had fun, and I hope you all will enjoy. Hi, Dr. Kelly. (laughs) Thank you for sitting down with me today or this evening after seeing patients. Hi, Susie. My pleasure. So today on the podcast, like I said, I wanted to talk about your history, how you got started in medicine, and then I thought it would be fun to cover egg freezing specifically because I know you do a lot of that here. Mm -hmm. And then I also want to talk about PCOS. But first, for those of you who don't know, Dr. Kelly is one of our advisory board members at Binto, and she has been for the past three years now. It's been a while. Yes. (laughs) And just a fun fact, your daughter actually went to high school with my husband. Um, So for those who are listening, we've crossed paths in many ways, which I think is just kind of a fun fact to know. So if you wouldn't mind starting back to the beginning, and I've actually never talked to you about this, but how did you get started? In medicine. In medicine? Mm -hmm. Very interesting. My father wanted to be a physician, but World War II intervened and he never completed his medical studies. So I think just hearing him talk about how great medicine was made me curious. So by the time I was in high school, I was pretty much dedicated to the idea of going into medicine. And I also have always had a bit of a rebellious side. So at that time, it wasn't that common for women to go into medicine. So I found it to be an extra challenge to do it and haven't regretted a day of it. So fascinating. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that about your dad. Mm -hmm. And then how did you, I guess, in med school, were you interested in women's health or what led you to yes. women's health? Yep, it was in medical school after various rotations. I enjoyed almost all of the rotations, including surgery and internal medicine. Mm-hmm. And as many people who go into OBGYN, it just was like the perfect specialty because it incorporated all of those things. So true. And I also was very interested in women's health. 
at that point. So I did my OBGYN residency. And during that time, I did research with an amazing reproductive endocrinologist at Cornell. And I think that is what strongly influenced me to keep on and doing, you know, subspecialty fellowship and go into reproductive endocrinology because of that mentor. Probably. I Mm -hmm. mean, I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but if you look back, so many more men were OBs back in the day. But like you said, not a lot of women could, you know, go to medical school. Right. And it wasn't a field that we were in. So it's amazing to see more women in medicine and more women in women's health. I think that's really important. Yes, yes, yes. We understand <laughs> the body or the female reproductive system. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say women. But, and then you went on to work for Penn, and we actually never overlapped there right. when I was a nurse because you left and then started Society Health reproductive medicine. That's right. Which is where we're sitting. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. How many years ago was that? That was nine years ago. Oh, wow. Nine years and one month. Okay. Yes. I didn't yes. realize. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I know. That's so that's a huge accomplishment. It, it's also a reflection of how time goes by because yeah. nine years ago, I mean, it's, <laughs> as I said, nine years, boom, mm-hmm. and here we are. I know. I think one of the coolest things about your practice is the wellness, mm-hmm. which is how you sort of integrate maybe holistic health or other aspects of care, infertility treatment, or reproductive medicine. Yes. I mean, one of the things, well, I've been in medicine and practicing this specialty now for 25 years. And one of the things that was became clear to me over this time was the impact of diet, Mm -hmm. nutrition, I should say, weight, of course, and then research looking at things like acupuncture and its effect on fertility, IVF success. And I'm a very strong believer in trying to integrate those things, you know, what looking at what kinds of things in one's day-to-day life, one's lifestyle choices that can have a really big impact. And it it shouldn't be a surprise to us that What we're eating, our nutrition has an impact on reproduction, for example. When you look at the ideal diet for that, it's also the ideal diet for your heart. And it's also the ideal diet to help prevent Alzheimer's. And it's, you know, there is an ideal diet for humans. So Mm -hmm. the wellness sprung out of seeing that need, sending my patients to various places around the city to access counseling or acupuncture you know, other therapies, we decided to just bring it under the same place, make it easier access. I feel like you're one of the few doctors. Well, when I started working in reproductive medicine that looks into this and when you do your, you know, monthly health education talks Mm -hmm. that you give, I always love that you touch on environmental factors and food and diet because it is so important and we're finally just now catching up, or I feel like mainstream. I agree. I agree. Medicine is, I don't know, I just feel like you've always been on the frontier of that. You know, I was open to it. I, I find that it is true that in medicine, many times if we don't understand something, mm-hmm. we don't even give it any reflection. We just say, that's 
I remember people come to me and say, my diet affect my endometriosis, my diet affect my this or that. And at one point we thought, oh no, no big deal. Your medicine will take care of everything. And then now, of course, we realize inflammatory reactions in response Mm -hmm. to certain foods. You know, we knew about how strong the immune system is in the GI tract, neurotransmitters in the GI tract. We know they were there, but yet we never really paid that much attention to them. It's crazy. Isn't it crazy? I know. And now we realize it affects mood. There's just, it's. I know. mm -hmm. Gut health is so critical. It is. (laughs) I'm laughing because Pat was saying that you and I bond over gut health. Yes, we do. We're both strong believers in it. Now, Pat's my husband. (laughs) And Dr. Kelly was just at our birthday party, which is earlier this month. Mm -hmm. She also can't believe. But yeah, we are. I feel like we do bond over that. And that's why I love going to your educational evenings that you put on. Because you do talk about it which is important. It is. Education is power. And you were mentioning, Susie, you wanted to talk about PCOS. I think in PCOS, diet, nutrition approaches, the importance of that started to penetrate its treatment earlier than its importance in other areas. And so that was one of the first hormonal systems that we started to recognize was influenced so much by what we ate. We never realized the impact of insulin on, say, ovarian function until people started to dig deeper and research PCOS. Yeah. So going back a little bit, Mm -hmm. well, first of all, PCOS is polycystic ovarian syndrome, just for anyone who's listening and who might not know. But, you know, what is it? Exactly. You know, it is a syndrome. And I know diagnosis is really tricky. Yes. Um, And we're finding out that not everyone necessarily fits this profile that we used to go by. Correct. Which is also fascinating. Yes. So PCOS, we should look at it as a a hormonal and metabolic disorder. It's a combination. Again, initially we just thought about it as being a hormonal disorder. Now we recognize that it is also a metabolic disorder. And there are multiple systems that play a role, ovaries, pituitary gland, adrenal, insulin system. So there are a number of systems that function uniquely. As you mentioned, the diagnosis today, well, we call it a syndrome because we don't understand it. Fully. Right. So that's an important thing to know. And then the other is we have to rely on certain criteria to actually make the diagnosis, but we know even that is somewhat limited. That's evolving. And but yet it is helpful to look at it. So, you know, one of the frustrating things for me is sometimes people will come in and say, Well, I have my blood strong and my doctor told me I don't have PCOS. Well, you can't (laughs) rule it out based on blood work alone. So there are three specific criteria to look at, and it's really only based on those, that full evaluation, which includes a person's history, ultrasound findings, and physical characteristics or blood work. Mm -hmm. And so you need to take into account all of those things before you make the diagnosis. Yeah. And so... What you would find on ultrasound would typically be what people call like honeycomb or polycystic appearing ovaries. That's so correct. You have 
lot of those premature follicles hanging out. And then in terms of the body characteristics, facial hair growth, acne, and weight, but you could be what they say, you know, lean PCOS. That's I correct. Mean, weight right. isn't necessarily a true indicator. It is not a true indicator. And so the physical characteristics will reflect what we call androgen excess. So it could, as you mentioned, you know, it could be acne, hair growth on the body, thinning of the hair on mm-hmm. the head. But there's some women who don't have any of that. And sometimes we only find the higher androgens, uh, certain hormones that are secreted by the adrenal glands and the ovaries in the bloodstream. Yeah. So as I said, it could be, that's just one of the criteria. And to meet the diagnosis, you really only need to have two of the three criteria. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's something that we see all the time at Vinto. In yes. The survey results and just on the chat feature that we have on our site all the time are questions about PCOS or, you know, I think I have mm-hmm. PCOS. My doctor mentioned it, but I don't fit the profile or I think I fit the profile based on everything I've read, but no one's ever diagnosed me. Right. And I feel like so many women probably do go undiagnosed because it is so tricky. And one of the things that we recommend is seeing a specialist like yourself. So maybe not just a GYN, but perhaps going to a reproductive endocrinologist who has that additional education on, you know, the hormone the hormones, system. Right. That's why it's <laughs> endocrinology. Exactly. But actually seeing someone who has studied this for an additional three years. So I always just like to remind those women who come on, like, don't forget to advocate for yourself if you really think that you have this, or maybe there's something else going on with the endocrine system right. that you're not aware of. Right. Just an example, someone I saw just the other day who is in her early 20s and you know, very normal weight, gets regular cycles, and of course didn't fit the classic profile, but yeah. on blood work has high testosterone, has some facial hair growth, and her ultrasound showed the typical appearance. So she meets the criteria, although at first glance, I'm sure somebody would think not because she had regular cycles and she's normal weight. There's so many other things about PCOS that are not necessarily part of the criteria Mm -hmm. also that I think people should be aware of. It's been recognized and confirmed through research higher incidence of depression and anxiety, for example. Yeah. Do you think that has to do with the higher androgen levels or what I think it's a great question. I think the adrenal glands also, I think the secretion of cortisol, but I do think that there's, I'm not sure what the underlying cause is, but I see it. And I know Mm -hmm. that when I mention it to someone who has PCOS, oftentimes she feels that someone has finally listened to her and understands that she has anxiety, depression, Mm -hmm. and it may be part of a bigger picture. Yeah. And perhaps that maybe even stems back to the whole gut health. The gut health <laughs> piece that we talked about, which has a huge impact on your mental health. It does. As well as if you think about it, the times that women with PCOS, they secrete a lot of insulin mm-hmm. and many times their blood sugar will drop too low. And that will 
definitely promote an irritability and anxiety, a moodiness, fatigue, any number of things. So it could relate to that also. Yeah. So what are some tips that you give women that come in here who, you know, outside the wellness, Mm -hmm. but for anyone who's listening, what are some lifestyle or diet changes you know, aside from taking your bento supplements, and we can talk about those supplements. But, you know, I just think tips are so helpful. Or, you know, what are some good starting? There are. So one thing that I would say, and this comes from our nutritionist, she says, if there is anything that I would start with, I would start with breakfast. So Again, not uncommonly, that's the one diet where women with PCOS, they wake up, they're very, very tired, generally, even after a full night's sleep, their appetite is suppressed, they're really not hungry, they're not in the mood to eat breakfast, so they won't eat breakfast, and sometimes it'll be 12 o'clock, 2 o'clock before they have their first meal. Never heard this before. That would be the first thing, so it's not to be overwhelming, I would say, if you're going to focus on one thing, and you know, don't, Matt, you can start with something very, very small. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just peanut butter or almond butter on a piece of whole wheat toast or something that even if you take a few bites of it, it helps to stabilize your insulin secretion. The other is to eat something small, incorporating a protein about every three to four hours. So try to eat before you even get hungry. Because by the time you get the signal that you're hungry, your blood sugar has already started to drop. You've already secreted a lot of insulin. And that's what stimulates the ovary and alters the ovarian hormones and drives those other aspects of PCOS. So eating very regularly and proteins are important, things with high fiber, vegetables or other things with fiber, because those two things, fiber and protein foods, will stimulate insulin secretion, but in a slower fashion. Okay. So we don't have big peaks and valleys of insulin and blood sugar. So those are the key things. Exercise. And again, it doesn't mean, oh, sign up. You have to sign up for a gym or you have to do this seven days a week. (laughs) Even just walking. Just go walk. Right. Go for a hike. That's right. And nature is amazing for anxiety and depression, which is, again, one of the components of PCOS. So find a beautiful trail walk somewhere where there are trees. It would really will address a couple things that we see with PCOS. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like for the diet, I tried doing that whole intermittent fasting thing, but I feel like it really messed me up. <laughs> so I'm going back to eating again in the morning because I feel like I've noticed those peaks and valleys or just even more like digestive Mm-hmm. issues than mm-hmm. I usually have. Mm-hmm. Just interesting. I don't have PCOS, but I've always been that person who eats, you know, a good healthy breakfast and then small frequent meals right? with proteins and fiber throughout mm-hmm. the day. So I agree with you. Right. I think after testing the waters for myself, it's been the best thing. Right. It makes you feel right. just good, better. And then I know that a lot of women who have PCOS, you know, when they go to the doctor or whoever their health provider is, maybe it's an NP or physician assistant, and 
they get all these lifestyle modifications to incorporate, but they're often prescribed the pill. And this is a very controversial topic, I feel like, with a lot of our listeners or for women today is, you know, issues with the pill, not wanting to be on one. What do you recommend in terms of, like, mm-hmm. prescription drugs and PCOS? I'm right. just curious. Well, I don't have a one, one size, size fits all. Fits all. Okay. I really yeah. don't. One is the very first thing we'll look at is what is occurring now that is most bothersome to you. We have to keep an eye on the long term and minimize risk factors for diabetes late in life or weight gain, right? So, so, right, that's the insulin. But we also want to focus on what is, what is bothering somebody is the unpredictability of her period. Mm -hmm. Is it, I'm not saying it's just one or the other, it could be multiple things, but is it acne, hair growth, hair loss, mood, you know, what things are of utmost importance. Now, we can, if somebody would like to avoid being on pharmaceutically prepared Mm -hmm. medications like birth control pills, metformin, then we can give lifestyle changes a period of time. I would always caution somebody it's important to have a period every three months. Mm -hmm. So if somebody wants to avoid the pill but goes a long time without a period, then every three months we can use a true progesterone, what her ovaries should or normally be making, and just that's protecting against endometrial cancer and hyperplasia. I'm so glad you talked about this because Mm -hmm. it really, like I believe in that and you know, in all of my medical training, that's what I've been taught. So it's important to have a period or a withdrawal bleed that's of right. some kind to yes. shed your uterine bleeding <clears throat> a couple times a year. But I feel like so many health providers don't practice that. I don't know. It's just a little scary to me. Yes, it is scary but because it is true it is that PCOS is a risk factor for endometrial hyperplasia, yeah. endometrial cancer. We know how to prevent it. So if someone doesn't naturally shed their lining every three months. We can do it without using birth control pills. Of course, if somebody's on birth control pills, that also will naturally protect their uterus. Yeah. So, and then there are some supplements, which you can definitely Mm -hmm. talk about that are thought to be helpful. And I find much better tolerated. Yes. Than some of the pharmaceutically prepared medications. I mean, that's the feedback we hear. All the time for women who want the more natural over-the-counter mm-hmm. option rather than going on a pill because maybe it impacted their mood or their weight or another symptom that they didn't like from a hormonal mm-hmm. option. So we use NAC at Bento, which is the N-acetylcysteine. Mm-hmm. And I have to say probably well over 90% of the women who are on it at Bento start ovulating regularly when they start that supplement. Right. In conjunction, we also use a probiotic. Again, going back to the gut health. Right. Giving them a healthy foundation there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there are a lot of of different options. There are. There are. And obviously, if someone wants to get pregnant, we have have to have a different approach. Right. Exactly. So speaking of that and transitioning a little bit, so I want to use, you know, don't want to abuse too much of your time, but... You are very well known in terms of, you know, not just PCOS and infertility treatments, 
but I feel like you would do a lot in the egg freezing space, especially here in Philadelphia. And you're often interviewed on that. And we have a lot of young women who are curious about it. So I just wanted to quickly ask you a couple of questions. Sure. And the first is, I love this one. You always hear egg freezing is an insurance policy. What's your take on that statement? Like, do you think it really is an insurance policy or how do you think women should view I think, so I think that's too strong of a statement. Okay. I do think that it provides the best that we have as of now to help protect chances of conception as a woman ages. (laughs) Right. And (laughs) so right now that is our only option. It's actually a great option, Mm -hmm. but one absolutely can't rely on it. Okay. Totally. One cannot feel that they are guaranteed that these eggs will translate into a pregnancy. And that's everything in in life. You know, there's never a 100% guarantee. So I do love to remind people that. But yeah, it is the only option that we have. And I think the reason why we're learning so much more about it or hearing more about it in mainstream media is that you know, up until how many years ago were we even, you know, the science wasn't there the yet. The science so was correct. And then now we, made, we are there. We are there. And <laughs> so that was a very, it's not quite, it's probably oh, about wow, seven years ago. Okay. But well, I mean, egg freezing, the very first time eggs were frozen in a human probably the late 80s right but not very successfully and because freezing just was so hard on Mm -hmm. the eggs that many of them didn't survive so until we improved freezing and thawing techniques we just didn't use it unless there was extreme circumstances right and now those freezing techniques are so advanced that they do not seem to be detrimental to the eggs and i would say that with a bit of caution because I think as we collect more data, we realize that maybe a frozen egg doesn't act quite as well as a fresh egg does. And we should factor that in when we're advising women about the number of eggs they should freeze okay. if they want to use them in yeah. the future. And so you're recommended, I mean, the more the better to me, right? <laughs> in a way. I mean, there in are some guidelines. Based on a woman's age, we can predict the number of eggs that should be normal in a group of eggs. And again, these are generalizations. But based on that, interestingly enough, the older someone is, the more eggs we should freeze. The rub there is that, unfortunately, as women get older, they (laughs) tend to make fewer eggs during stimulation and retrieval. But the guidelines are, in general, Under 35, about 20 eggs, 35 and over, about 25 Mm -hmm. eggs. But at certain ages, even 8 or 10 eggs, 12 eggs would be enough. And then the best, I mean, I saw this all the time at Penn. You know, women would come in when they turned 40 and freeze their eggs, which, you know, if you can do it then, and, you know, it is what it is, you've gotten to that point. But we really recommend earlier if you know that this is a viable thing for you or if it's something that 
you want to do. True. Right? I mean, ideally, if you can do it. that's right. <laughs> if you can do it, ideally, what you'd like to do is to freeze your eggs when they are at the height of their fertility, for example, right. which we know, well, we know at 26 is where it peaks. And then there's a slight decline after that. But that yeah. decline is very, very slight. Okay. And so I would often suggest to women they think about it in the early 30s to up to about 33, 34, if they're not actively trying to conceive at that point. Yeah. I've certainly had people come who knew that they were young, but they knew they would not be attempting conception until they were in their late 30s based mm-hmm. on training or career or any other number of reasons. So again, we'd love to freeze them when they're at the height of fertility because then they're most likely to lead to success. Right. So, and again, the woman who is older than that, it's not that we couldn't be successful, but we have to factor in her age, predicted fertility, and the number of eggs she should freeze mm-hmm. based on her age. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think another big thing that I'm seeing a lot in the media or press, because obviously, and I, I research all of this daily and try to keep tabs, is you know, age is still the number one predictor of fertility in women. And while hormone tests are, you know, a great, they're not the end-all, be-all when it comes to predicting fertility. And I think it's really important that women know that because so many of them are sold these hormone testing kits, which is great. But I mean, you really have to be careful because your hormones can fluctuate at different points in your cycle, correct. different months. So correct. There's also this concept of these hormonal tests are done to reflect something called ovarian reserve. Yes. And our understanding of ovarian reserve has changed mm-hmm. over just the last few years, honestly, which was yeah. why I think there is such misconception about it. Certainly even, as you said, in the media, but I'll find it even within some of the physicians or practitioner Definitely. world because some of this research really has only just recently been published. So age still predicts fertility. Ovarian reserve, we now understand, should only be used to predict whether or not somebody will respond well to medication if she's going through an egg freeze cycle or an IVF cycle, likelihood of her making an embryo. But having good ovarian reserve does not predict that you have good fertility. It depends on your age, whether you have good fertility. Mm -hmm. So it will be really helpful when that knowledge starts to penetrate. I know. And ASRM did come out what, in October of 2017 or 18 with a report saying that AMH is not a predictor of fertility. Exactly. I mean, as someone who's turning 31 in December and as a fertility nurse, it's funny to think about because I had full coverage at Penn Medicine for egg freezing. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, oh, why didn't you know, why didn't I do that when I had the coverage? So if you are listening and you have the coverage and it you think you might want to do this because you're not sure, just go explore and and investigate. I also find that many people who come in to talk to me about it think it's cost much more than it actually does. So that's important to Mm -hmm. investigate that a little bit if cost is what's stopping someone. Yeah, you can literally just call your insurance company 
and find out talk covered. about <laughs> covered benefits. Right. It's not, I think we think of insurance as being this terrifying hole, which in so many cases it is. But sometimes, you know, you get a great person on the other end of the line. I mean, I did that when I got my hormones tested. Mm-hmm. When was it? This summer. I went, I did a video on how to do that. And oh, I just yes. called and right. figured out, right. you know, what ICD nine or 10 code they to use and, mm-hmm. and what to do. So just pick up the phone and call if you're curious. Yes. That is a good point. It might be way less than you think. Well, yes. And even if it's not covered, I think people are surprised about what it costs, right. that it's less. And then if you can't figure it out with your insurance company, things like consultations, mm-hmm. just to learn about it or to get your hormones, to, whatever it is, those are covered. Those yeah. types of visits are covered. And then you know, practices like mine will then call your insurance yeah, company you for you that. and mm-hmm. find out, you know, give the codes and find out what it costs. That's so nice. The other thing to know is when I do talk to people, even though it's the focus is on, you know, perhaps the first pregnancy, I would say it also depends on what your ideal family is. Right. And we all, you know, know that we can't count on what we necessarily count on what our ideal is but Mm -hmm. if someone says to me I would like three children and she's 34 or 35 then it makes sense to freeze those eggs they may not be important for the first child but they may come into importance for the second or third pregnancy so it's good to look at it broadly as Mm -hmm. well it's so true Mm -hmm. I think you know my husband and I are going through this now because I know too much. Uh-huh. <laughs> I would like, you know, kids sooner. And the reason why I want to start sooner is that, you know, I know my egg health will likely decline mm-hmm. and that I would like more than one child. And so as I, you know, head further into my thirties, it is something that kind of lands on you all of a sudden, it even does. if you, if you weren't thinking about it. And right. I feel like it just kind of hits you one month and you wake up and you're like, Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, now I'm that yeah, person, right? Now I'm that person now that I, yeah, I need to I think help about on a this. daily basis, exactly. which is crazy right. to think about. And, you know, definitely if you're not with a partner or with a partner that, you know, you'll want to wait until much later, just go have a consult mm-hmm. and talk to someone like yeah. you because you can learn so much. Yeah. And I do think that Again, people are acknowledging age, but many times they really, truly don't understand. It's because of our culture, it's mind-boggling that peak fertility for women is in their mid-20s. And for men, too, their healthiest offspring are from men who are in their Mm mid-20s. So it's not well acknowledged. Yeah, Mm -mm. it's not. No. At least we're here. Yes. Hopefully. Yes. (laughs) Talking about it, which is an important piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And you did mention something or allude to something that I'm also seeing, and that is couples coming in Mm -hmm. and they will do what we call an embryo banking. Yeah. So that's not egg freezing. It's actually embryo freezing because they know they want children, but not at that time. And to freeze. It is much more stable. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Pat and I have talked about that. In the past, <laughs> just because I, I mean, I think it's good to talk about it, it and I wouldn't want to freeze my eggs at this point. I probably would want to do yes. embryo freezing if I did something, yes. but who knows? We'll see. 
<laughs> so I guess to wrap up, I thought it would be fun to ask what's one thing that you would want women to take away about maybe a PCOS key piece of information and then also something about egg freezing. And I know we talked about a lot, but just in summary, what are like the two things that you would want people to know? So, (laughs) well, one is lifestyle choices do make a difference for both PCOS and egg quality Mm -hmm. for women, even without PCOS. Yeah. For example, weight smoking and insulin resistance alcohol so there are some choices that one can make on a day-to-day basis that will make a big difference and then the second which is also applicable for both groups of women women considering egg freezing and with pcos is that not keep age in mind i don't mean to say that to put pressure on people right but since there are options then you know think about it that way mm-hmm. um, you know just allow yourself to know that that's true and that there are potential options if you're not quite ready to conceive that right. could be extremely helpful so i think those would be the two things yeah those are two big things mm-hmm. and i'm definitely in that second boat of knowing what my options are and I feel so much better. The other (laughs) is what you mentioned, sorry, this is the third thing. No, go for it. For people not to feel intimidated or shy about getting a consultation Mm -hmm. from a reproductive endocrinologist. I've had met meet people very regularly, they want information. Mm -hmm. They may come back one or two or three years later. Mm And maybe then they want to do something like freeze eggs or whatnot, but it doesn't hurt. And it's generally covered by insurance. And our ideal is to try and educate people for prevention rather than treatment. Exactly. And we get that question all the time. Like, you know, I've only been trying for X amount of months and I'm under 36. When can I go? If you feel, I don't know, I feel like if you feel something's wrong or if you just want to talk to someone, it's okay to it schedule a consult. And it is. You shouldn't feel bad about Not wanting at all. to talk to someone. It's a good thing. Not at all. Yeah. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up again. Well, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. We covered a lot. We did. It was good. <laughs> I enjoyed it very much. I always learn something new when I sit down with Dr. Kelly, and I hope that's how you all felt listening to this episode. She's a wealth of information. And if you want to find out more about Dr. Kelly and her two businesses, The Wellness and Society Hill Reproductive Medicine, you can find them online or you can find them on Instagram at The Wellness or at Society Hill Reproductive Medicine. And don't forget, if you have questions, ideas, people you want us to interview, topics you want us to cover, or just your frequently asked questions that you want Andy and I to break down in our next FAQ episode of this podcast, please feel free to email us anytime at upyourglow@myvinto.com, or you can slide into our DMs on our Instagram at myvinto. I hope you all are enjoying this and I can't wait to talk to you next week. Cheers.